If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free, which for us is really important. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purpose of education. This episode was sponsored by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. Today's guest is Dr. Lindsay Spiegelman. Dr. Spiegelman is an emergency medicine physician and clinical faculty at the University of California, Irvine Medical Center. She double majored in neuroscience and psychology at the University of Southern California and then went to medical school at UC Irvine. She completed a clinical informatics fellowship and MBA at UC Irvine as well. She's the lead medical informaticist for the UCI emergency department and a member of the emergency department clinical operations team. And she's particularly interested in projects related to ED throughput, hospital efficiency, and leveraging technology for effective patient. So welcome, Dr. Spiegelman. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Our topic for today focuses more on the business side of medicine, but before we get into all of that, Dr. Spiegelman, tell me a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Northern California in Palo Alto. And like you mentioned, I came down to Southern California afterwards to go to college at USC and then went on to UC Irvine. I've been there for a bit now, finished medical school and then emergency medicine residency and then did an informatics fellowship. I also kind of tacked on an administration fellowship in addition to getting my MBA. And now I work on the clinical operations team as the associate medical director and the lead informaticist at UCI. I've been at UCI for a long time and I'm loving working there so far. So what made you decide to go into medicine in the first place? When I was an undergrad, I got involved in some biomedical research at a pharmaceutical company that was kind of associated with my neuroscience and psychology background in addiction medicine. So that was really my taste of medicine and science and research. And I found that I liked that aspect of it, but I missed the component in the human interaction. So I started volunteering at CHLA in various departments, and I found that Being able to link my interest in science and research with helping patients is really what pushed me towards, you know, going into medicine and pursuing my MD. That's awesome. I actually had sort of a similar path where when I was doing all of my PhD research, I also sort of missed that human connection. And that was part of what led me to medical school. That's really cool. So what made you choose emergency medicine in particular? Because that's a little different than the neuroscience and psychology. Yeah. And so a lot of my exposure to medicine going into medical school was pediatric. So I thought potentially I might do that, but I found that I wanted to take care of all patients, all ages, you know, such a diverse background. And I loved that with an emergency medicine, you never know what you're going to see that day and you never know really how your shift is going to go. And you're always on your toes having to think through cases every time. I think that the shift work for me also works really well because it allows me time to pursue other interests, work on projects, 
And ultimately, it just fit my personality well. And it's where I loved to be. So that's where I chose emergency medicine. What's your favorite thing about emergency medicine? Is it one of those things or something different? It's one of those things, but also the fact that I don't have to think about patients' insurance a lot of the time. I mean, you do when you ultimately admit the patient to the hospital sometimes, but ultimately I can provide care to everyone and anyone, regardless of insurance, where they come from, and why they're there. And I think for me, that just is very fulfilling. I love that too. I mean, there definitely are times when we have to worry about insurance and potentially transfer people if they need to be admitted. But for the most part, I am so with you. I really appreciate that we can see everyone, treat everyone regardless of that insurance status. Yeah, exactly. So what's your least favorite thing about emergency medicine? So my least favorite part of the emergency department is probably, you know, the counter to one of my favorite parts. I think the emergency department, you know, is the canary in the coal mine in a lot of ways. We see all the issues and the problems with the healthcare system. And there are times when we, you know, can't provide access or can't get the patient what they need for that day. And the fact that healthcare is so expensive at this point is also tough to see. But, you know, we do what we can. We provide whatever care we have access to, especially with UC Irvine being, you know, a county type hospital at UCI, I feel like I am able to provide as much care as possible, even with all those constraints. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another great thing about emergency medicine is being able to provide that care, no matter, like we said before, what your insurance is, what your background is, where you're actually from. You don't have to worry about like the geographic area as much. So that can be great. Do you have a memorable case you can discuss anonymously that you think has an interesting teaching point? Yes. At UC Irvine, we see a ton of patients. We have residents, so we have a ton of learners. And I think in the emergency department, sometimes it's easy to kind of just take the word of the consultant. And so I thought an interesting case that I had recently was just to remind us, you know, as emergency physicians that Sometimes we need to stick to our guns a little bit, even if a consultant maybe doesn't quite agree with you. So this was a case of, I think, a 40-something-year-old gentleman who had a fall a couple weeks before that went to an outside hospital, actually got an MRI of his shoulder, was found to have a ligament injury in his shoulder, and was discharged with pain control and referral to see a surgeon with surgery planned in the next two weeks. And then he presented to UCI with just persistent pain, so much discomfort, using up his Norco faster than he was prescribed and was just in, you know, a lot more pain than you would think someone might be with just a ligament injury. So I was just going to my resident, talk to the patient about multimodal pain control and how, you know, surgery coming up in two weeks is actually good. And, but then we sat down to do the physical exam and his shoulder was so red and hot and tender and he didn't want to move it. And I was like, it's a little bit odd for a septic joint, but I mean, it's possible it could happen. And even after, you know, consulting the orthopedist on call, they did not feel like this was a septic joint. We told them, you know, we're concerned enough that if you don't want to tap the joint, we're going to attempt it. Ultimately, they attempted to tap the joint, but were only able to get very small amount of fluid that couldn't give us a cell count. So we were stuck with this, you know, case where we were concerned, orthopedics was not concerned, and the patient was in a lot of pain, and we had a non-diagnostic joint tap. So ultimately, we ended up admitting the patient for pain control and further workup. 
and he continued to have pain. They got a repeat MRI in a couple days, and he ended up having AC joint, uh, septic joint. People present in weird ways. They do not read the textbook. And just because someone had a fall and has a ligament injury seen on an MRI, it doesn't mean that that could be the only thing going on. So listen to your consultants. But if you feel that your concern is higher, you know, stick to your guns. I think that can be one of the toughest parts of our job is really finding a way to balance relationships with consultants and advocating for patients when, you know, your spidey sense in a way is just telling you that there's something not right going on, even if you don't have the perfect diagnostic test for that at that time. I remember like looking at the patient when my resident was talking to him and like looking at his shoulder and I was like, it's kind of red. Like, I don't know, it shouldn't be that hot and warm and angry. And then he ended up also having a fever too. And so there was just too many things that didn't quite fit with a ligament injury in the shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. You also did a fellowship in informatics. And I'm genuinely asking, what does (laughs) that mean? (laughs) I get that question a lot. It's a new-ish field. And the way that I describe it is computer plus person is better than either one by themselves. So how do we do our jobs better, leveraging technology to make us more efficient, have decreased errors, and ultimately, hopefully, you know, provide better care to patients? So when I try to explain informatics, that's what I say. Some specific examples would be, you know, how do we design a pop-up or a BPA, a best practice alert, so that it shows up in the right place at the right time for the right person to be able to improve care. So like a sepsis alert, for example, you know, you have a patient who comes in with abnormal vital signs and that pop-up tells you this patient might have sepsis, please evaluate them for sepsis. Right. That kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, it's easy sometimes to think that more alerts will change care, but really it's about, do we really need this alert? Like, really being vigilant about what we add to the EHR and who should see that alert and what the options are after you implement it. That's just sort of one example. In addition, we make a lot of decisions very quickly about what we order for patients. So how do we change the layout of the order set or the quick list panel for you to pick the different orders that you would need and tests that you would want to do? That is really important. I am very particular about how my order sets look. So yeah, that can be something that can be hugely time-saving. So I'm glad that there are people like you putting a lot of thought into what makes it most efficient and useful. Yeah, I really like it. And I find that I can actually implement sometimes small, sometimes medium, sometimes big changes that our emergency doctors actually use and, and help. And I get feedback that this really helped my workflow and I'm way more efficient now. And for me, that's extremely rewarding because I can actually you know, make some changes to improve our, our workflow. Yeah, definitely. And I also really appreciated your attention to when maybe too many pop-ups can interfere with efficiency because they can be great reminders when you need to think, did I calculate the heart score? Did I evaluate this patient appropriately for sepsis or, you know, any number of things. But when it's pop-up after pop-up after pop-up, that starts to interfere with care at some point. So it's really cool that you're 
thinking about these things and thinking about how to improve efficiency and good care while also not putting so many roadblocks in the the system that you can't get real work done. Yes. Alert fatigue and physician burnout are definitely interconnected. And so I think just as the ED informaticist, that's one of the things that I really try to do is make sure that if we are making a change that we really think through it and that we're not just making changes to make changes, that it's going to be helpful and improve care. Yeah. Alert fatigue is really interesting to me. I remember there was a place that I worked where there was so much caution tape everywhere. They would caution tape the floor stickers, like (laughs) outlining where the doors opened. So it was to a point where when there was actually a real hazard, it was almost you ignored that it was there because you're so used to seeing yellow caution tape everywhere. And I think the drug drug interaction ones are a perfect example of this. You know, we get so many drug drug interaction BPAs that I don't know that at this point they're helpful. And so I think, yeah, again, just being vigilant about what we implement that we then Mm -hmm. impose on the rest of the physicians, I think is super important. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. So you also got an MBA. I remember hearing in medical school over and over and over about people who are thinking about starting a private practice that physicians can be great clinicians and horrible business people. So I think this is a really interesting career choice for a physician to make. So can you tell me a little bit more about combining business and medicine? Yes, definitely. Ultimately, medicine is a business. And the more that physicians kind of try to pretend that it's not, I think the more that we do ourselves a disservice and we're not able to make changes within our field and advocate for ourselves. Specifically with informatics, there's so much overlap between what I learned in the MBA and informatics. Doing projects, you know, working with everyone in the hospital, like interpersonal relationships, understanding how to, you know, move things through the system with all the bureaucratic, you know, tape that might be around you. I think it's just super helpful. Even if you don't get a full MBA, just having a general understanding of billing and reimbursements and all the intricacies of our healthcare system is really helpful for all of us in the medical field. Yeah, I can definitely say that my knowledge in those fields is lacking. And that's part of why I went into emergency medicine because I didn't want to think about that. But I absolutely see your point in that physicians in general really should know more about how all of that works so that we can better advocate for ourselves and our patients and improve those systems that we've been talking about. Yeah. And I see myself in the future, hopefully continuing with ED operations and informatics and potentially, you know, hospital administration and leadership. And I wanted to spend these few years after residency, just making sure I had all the knowledge and skills informatics and operations fellowship and MBA. Just so I had the solid background to be able to attack those projects and problems and potential career um, aspirations in the future. So it seemed like the right time to put in all the work right now. So speaking of that, how do you think getting an MBA has helped you with improving hospital operations? I mentioned this to you briefly before, but one of the projects that I've been working on is trying to get us another CT scanner in the emergency department. UC Irvine is a level one trauma center. We're a stroke and STEMI receiving center. Our volumes recently have skyrocketed and our length of stays for patients is pretty long. Like patients sit in our waiting room for a very long time. And one of the really the limiting factors is getting another scanner. 
So I had a, you know, healthcare business class. And for that class, they had us write a proposal called a white paper. And I picked the CT scanner issue within our ED. And I was able to use, you know, queuing logic and recommend, you know, that we need another CT scanner based on that. I looked at, you know, net present value and other business project tools to analyze whether this would be a good or a bad project based on reimbursements and ultimately just kind of being able to compile my knowledge from the emergency department and the MBA and put together a paper to show that, you know, we really do need this. Not only do we need this for patient safety, but actually if we can keep more patients from leaving without being seen or eloping partway through their treatment, we might actually gain more revenue. If we can be up for EDSAT and get more of our ambulance runs, those patients tend to have better reimbursement. So it might seem like ultimately we're spending more money for another scanner, but all the numbers that I was able to put together shows that this actually might be beneficial for the hospital overall. So I'm hopeful that it goes forward. We're still in the waiting periods. Oh, good luck. I really hope it does go forward because I think that is a huge bottleneck sometimes in patient care when people are just waiting for test results to come back. And so if you can improve that throughput, then I mean, that improves care, it improves the wait time, it improves the ability for the emergency department to see more patients faster. So it makes tons of sense. Yeah, it really does. I really think at this point, it's a matter of time before we get one. I, I know we need one. And so I just hope it's sooner rather than later. We'll be able to provide much better care if we had more access to CT. Definitely. That's really cool. Good job. Fingers <laughs> <Yes>, crossed. <laughs> so along the lines of operations as well, you've championed growing telemedicine. Tell me a little bit more about how you started working on the telemedicine effort and how it related to the pandemic as well. Yes, this was such an interesting project. I was a first year fellow when my mentor and the CMIO of UCI, uh, Dr. Rudkin, came to me and said, it's time to find you a big project. Let's find you something interesting. We're hoping to implement video visits or UCI telemedicine for all of the ambulatory clinics at UCI. At that point, it was, I think, in 2020, before the pandemic had really hit. And UCI was using Teladoc, an outsourced company, to provide telemedicine. But we didn't have access to it for our own doctors at that point. So the plan was to slowly roll out telemedicine to various clinics over a six-month, year-long process. And then COVID happened and we completely revamped the project and went live with all the clinics within about a month and a half. So it was quite the 180 to change the plan to get everybody access to this necessary tool. It was fascinating too. At the beginning, we got a lot of people asking, is this really necessary? Like, I like seeing my patients in person. I don't know that I'll ever use this. I don't think this, this is going to work for my workflows. You know, a lot of people with questions and reservations about adoption and how it would fit in for their clinics. And then fast forward two months later, when nobody could be seen in clinic at all, wording was very different. They were like, when is my clinic going to have this technology? Why am I not already live with this? And it was really interesting to see how a change in landscape and a 
change in the atmosphere and something like, you know, COVID moves us forward with this new technology and people are now on, on board. I hope that telemedicine can continue and will continue into the future because there are so many applications for telemedicine that I think really can improve care. And there are situations where you don't necessarily need to have an in-person visit, but you need to see a doctor or some sort of clinician to help with whatever a particular issue is. And so having telemedicine improve access to medical care, particularly in rural areas, is so great and so important. And I love seeing that this effort just continues to grow. And this is just another plug for the informatics team at UC Irvine. We have doctors from all specialties that help with projects and everybody came together to implement this for all the clinics in such a short period of time. It wouldn't have been possible without Judy Smith, our project manager, and Dr. Rudkin, uh, the CMIO, and then like all the other informatics faculty that helped move this forward. It was such a big lift and it was really great to see everybody come together and zero to 100 and make this happen. And you mentioned there are a lot of other specialties involved as well. Is the informatics fellowship open to other specialties or is it just emergency medicine? It is. It is multidisciplinary, which is very cool. So at the moment, we have an internal medicine fellow and an emergency medicine fellow. And then starting in the fall, we'll have a peds fellow. We've had pathology in the past. So the great thing about informatics is that I get to work with people from all specialties all across the hospital. And it really helps us understand each other and our workflows and see the struggles and the things that the different specialties are dealing with on a day-to-day basis that you wouldn't otherwise know. You only know your world that you trained in, but informatics allows us to sort of cross the disciplines and work together as a big team, which I think is great. Yeah, that's really cool. That's also such a great point in that We train a certain way and we sort of know our own universes of the hospital. But, you know, when you're having a tough day, it doesn't matter whether you're seeing 20 or 30 patients in the emergency department or you're reviewing hundreds of slides in a pathology department. You know, when you're overloaded, it really does help having some of that common knowledge and understanding those struggles. Yes, definitely. So do you have any final words of advice before we wrap this up? Yeah, I definitely have some words of advice. I think for me, one of the biggest learning points is that even though you may not think that a field will fit you perfectly, you should explore it. And I say this because clinical informatics was something that I never intended to do or expected that I would do. And I was introduced to it as a resident in emergency medicine by Dr. Rudkin, talking to me about his career and what he does on a day-to-day basis. And just the more I learned about it, the more I stopped being nervous about the fact that I wasn't super experienced in IT or had a lot of technology background. And so I think the landscape is changing. The world has to adopt to technology everywhere. And you want to get ahead of it so that you're able to be involved in how everything's moving forward. And so even if you might not feel that you're super techie or you grew up coding or doing those kinds of experiences, there could still be a place for you in technology and informatics and and fields like that. So keep your mind open and it could open your eyes to a bunch of different things. That's really great advice. 
I think it's so cool how it was something that seemed almost a little bit scary at first when you're thinking about it and approaching it. And over time, you just continue to learn and really become more comfortable with the field. And now you're at the forefront of that field. So that's really exciting. Definitely. Any causes you'd like to champion or plug? Sort of in line with what I mentioned is, you know, I think women have done a great job of making their way into medicine in general. I think we're starting to see even more women applying to medicine and medical school these days. But I think in IT and a lot of these more maybe technical subfields, we're still not seeing a ton of women. And again, just even if it seems foreign or a little scary, explore it. See if it might work for you. And there are pieces of informatics and IT that aren't quite as techy as you might think that they are. And I just want to make sure that people feel like it's approachable and they should try to explore it themselves and see if it's potentially something that they would like. Because I've learned so much and I'm just so excited for my future career. And if I hadn't taken that step, then I wouldn't have had those opportunities. That's great advice. And especially today, I should note that we're recording this on International Women's Day. So by the time our listeners hear this, it'll be a happy belated International Women's Day. But thank you so much for all of the knowledge that you've shared and uh, really bringing forward a lot of these different causes and interesting avenues that people in and out of emergency medicine can pursue. Thank you so much. It was such a great experience being on this podcast. Oh, well, thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode. Our guest today was Dr. Lindsay Spiegelman. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. If you like what you hear, please give us a like, subscribe, or comment. Until next time.